0: Thank you so much for joining us today. We're glad that you're listening. As always, be sure to give us a like on Facebook at Southern Hills United Methodist Church. And be sure to check out our website at www.shumcokc.org. We're glad that you're listening today, and we hope you enjoy today's message. It's a funny thing about life that you will not grow something that is different from what you have planted. So the seeds that you plant are the seeds that are gonna grow. Oftentimes then, when we realize that, and I think sometimes it happens far too late. I think sometimes we plant things unintentionally. If I were going to change one thing about my life going forward, Kate asked me that this year, what are you going to focus on in the next year? I think if I were going to change one thing about my life going forward, it would be more intentionality as I'm planting seeds in my life and with my life. Because when you don't, when you're not intentional, you're planting something, right? And when you're not intentional, then sometimes you discover far too late what it is that you've planted. And you don't discover that until what you've planted begins to grow. By the time that what you've planted begins to grow, that plant is not gonna substantially change from what was planted. And sometimes we'll see that and think to ourselves, oh my gosh, this can't, I can't let this continue. And so what do we do? We try to plant better seeds. Jesus has this whole set of parables about that. And summarized, one of the teachings from those parables is this. You can't plant good seeds in soil that's already growing bad plants. You can't plant good seeds in soil that's already growing weeds and expect good things to come of it. There won't be enough space. There won't be enough nutrients. There won't be enough time. So you have to pull up What was planted so that you can replant with intentionality seeds that will grow into a harvest that is worth reaping. James is going to start that process. He's going to start talking to us about that, about what it is that you're doing with your life. And interestingly, He's going to begin with anger. You may have a right to be angry. Would you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh upon us. Spirit of the living God, like like a, a rain that waters a thirsty ground. A creation that has been groaning in anticipation of what you have been waiting to grow. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Melt us, mold us, remold us, fill us and use us. But Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Amen. Amen. You may have a right to be angry. I'm as ashamed of this as anything else that I've ever done. Happened early in my uh, career in ministry. I was a young minister, I was a young man at that point. I'll be starting my third decade of ministry soon. That's hard for me to even wrap my mind around. As is how much the landscape of the world, the country, the culture that we live in and the climate of ministry It's hard for me to wrap my mind sometimes around how much that changed over the course of the last few decades. I was early, it was early in my ministry. I was a young man at the time. I didn't have uh, a lot of life experience, but I thought I did. And I was, Kate and I were appointed to a church in a very small town. And I had been uh, tasked that day with going to visit somebody who's in the hospital. And I was thinking about this. I'd kind of structured my day around it. I don't know if you've ever lived in a small town before, but the rhythms of life are different. I, I grew up uh, in a large city, suburban area in a large city. I live in a city now, and I love the city that I live in. But Kate and I have also been really fortunate to live in a number of small towns. Small towns that range from 2,000 people to six or 7,000 people. I've joked before about how those towns had 23 churches in them. Uh, This town in particular, 2,000 people, 23 churches. Uh, It's not a lot of people to divide between those churches, but the rhythms of life were different. I lived across the street diagonally from my church, and I lived on church row. All of the, the four biggest churches were right on that row. The Pentecostal church was right across the street from my house. It was good friends with Jeremy, who's still a pastor there. I could literally leave to go to church. If I had a meeting or something going on that night, I didn't measure my commute in anything other than seconds. It took me 30 seconds, if it was raining, to get across the street. But the hospital was pretty far away. And so... Uh, Typically, where we were at the time, people would go to a hospital either here in Oklahoma City or they would go to one in Tulsa. We were right about halfway between them, so people would go to different places. And so this day in particular, I was driving to Tulsa to go visit somebody who was going to be having surgery that day. And I had structured my whole day around this because it was a trip to get to Tulsa, visit somebody in the hospital, and then get back. And so I'd been driving, and I'd been thinking, I had a friend once... Um, Passed away recently. He was probably the most effective small-town United Methodist pastor I've ever met in my whole life, and he used to. He was fond of taking appointments out in the panhandle of Oklahoma. Now, if you're not originally from here, if you're participating from somewhere else, you may not know that you can drive for quite a while out in the panhandle without seeing a whole lot of things. And so he was fond of. Uh, making trips between his two- and three-point charges. That means he'd be appointed to two or three, sometimes four churches at the same time. So he'd do a lot of driving between those churches. And he was fond of saying, Matt, whatever you do, make sure that you don't waste your windshield time. Never waste your windshield time. It's a great time to spend with God. I don't know what your commute looks like because sometimes here and in other cities, especially growing cities, you cannot have to drive very far, but it takes a very long time to get there, right? Don't waste your windshield time. So I didn't want to waste my windshield time. I was was having a great conversation with God, talking about all of the good and holy and righteous things by the time I pulled into Tulsa, where traffic is just unrealistically awful. Traffic, especially um, South Tulsa, just really hard to get around in. We used to live there. And so I'm sitting there, right, at a stoplight. Now one thing that we have in common, no matter where you are from in Oklahoma, we share this, this ridiculous impatience for people at stop lines, at stop, si- stop signs Excuse me, and stoplights. We'll do a couple of things that I haven't seen anywhere else. One is that if you're the first person, and everybody here knows why we do this, right? Nobody else in the world does, but we all do. If you're the first person to reach the stoplight, you're going to stop like 40 feet back from the stoplight right? You're going to stop so far back from the stoplight because you're worried about people cutting corners. Took me a long time to realize that here in Oklahoma, and, and I love living here, we don't have an ability to turn to the left. Like we kind of drive straight across the turn lane in order to get to the other lane that we're going. And so we've all learned from that. So we stop super far back from the stoplights, right? The other thing that we share in common is this ridiculous impatience for people who don't notice that the light has changed in front of us. And so somebody will start, start honking incessantly so that the person in front of them will go. Now it doesn't matter who you are or how distracted you were on your phone when the light turned green and you should have seen it but you didn't so you're making everybody wait and they honk at you, you're gonna get mad at them when they start honking at you, right? Because they should have more patience even if you just honked at somebody at the light back before the one you just stopped at. So there I am, right? I'm sitting there, just like a good Oklahoman, I'm 40 feet back from the stoplight, making sure there's plenty of room. The light changes, I'm playing around on my phone not seeing that anything has happened and somebody behind me honks and I get so, and sometimes you have a right to be angry, right? And I'm angry because they need to learn to have more patience. I'm getting angry about it. They need to learn to have more patience. How can their life be any good? You know what? If they would have spent as much windshield time talking to God about good, holy, and righteous things as I had spent that day, they'd have been more patient and they wouldn't have honked at me. That's what's going through my head. So I did, again, what every good Oklahoman does in a situation like that. And I just sat there. Waiting for the light, just sat there, and as soon as the light turned yellow, I went around the turn. Wasn't far after that, because I got stuck at another light that this person um, sped around me, doing some version of sign language that as a pastor I don't understand or know. And I was thinking about that because this particular version of sign language also happened to rub me the wrong way, right? And so I'm driving, and I'm trying to to use the rest of my windshield time to calm my righteous anger. And I pull into the um, hospital. There are a lot of hospitals, especially in the state of Oklahoma, um, that have clergy parking areas, like toward the front. There's usually two or three spaces. And I pulled in, and wouldn't you know it, the way the rest of the day was going, all those spaces were taken, so I had to park and walk another 20 feet, and that was just annoying me. And so my whole day is just kind of going downhill. I've structured the whole day to be there, to be able to be with this person, and I have to work to get my mind and my spirit and my emotions in the right place so that when I walk in, I can pray together with this, uh, the family and with the person who's about to have the procedure that's done, which is the whole reason that I'm there, right? And yet as I'm walking in, uh, I have this uh, God-given righteous anger about how I've been treated so miserably on my way here. Just because it's, I wanna say it's just because it's Tulsa. Although, um, I know that we have a lot of people who watch from Tulsa, so I'm not gonna start a rivalry between Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Mostly because Oklahoma City is clearly better. But I'm walking in trying to get myself into the right frame of mind, right? And I, I pass. The person that I had um, had behind me at the stoplight where I sat there, you know, and then they did the sign language, that same, I see him right there. And so, you know, I did, again, what any good Christian does, and actually like, stacked acts like I didn't see him, right? <laughs> didn't see him, maybe they didn't, see, but I could hear them talking to the person at the front desk, trying desperately to find uh, one particular room. And as they found the, the number of the room and took off running down the hallway. I mean running, like running down the hallway. I began to wonder what was going on. wasn't a big hospital. And so I found where I was going. And I... I uh, Convinced that the Holy Spirit works things out in ways that I'm never going to be able to fully understand. So I end up on the way to where I'm going, walking right past the room that this person was trying to get to. Just in time to literally watch her laying her head on the chest of an older man and sobbing uncontrollably while somebody else said to her, you just barely made it. And I spent the rest of my walk Wondering two things. What would have happened if in my righteous anger I had caused any more of a delay in her getting to where she was going? And... How much more time would she have had if I had chosen to pay attention to the God of my windshield time? You may have a right to be angry, but that does not make your anger right. Interestingly, that's where James starts. This whole letter, James was the brother of Jesus. Can you imagine that? Like we, we don't have any books or letters that are included in the canon of Scripture. And if you're new to the faith, that word canon just means uh, what was chosen to be included in the Bible. So we don't actually have any books or any letters that were written by the hand of Christ. We do have a letter that was written by his brother, and James, who is the brother of Jesus, would step up to be a leader in the post-resurrection Christian community. It was becoming to, it was starting to be called a lot of things. Eventually we'd be called Christians. But I just, every time I read this letter, and Martin Luther hated it. Now again, you know, if you're new to the faith, uh, Martin Luther was one of the reformers. He was responsible for a lot of the Protestant Reformation or what would become that. He had some issues with the Catholic Church. He put 95 ECs on the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. He hated this letter. He, he taught and, and wrote that the reason that he hated it was because of what James says about what Christians have always called works, uh, W-O-R-K-S, works. That's like an old way for Christians to talk about the actions you take, what you do, right? And so James is going to say things, and we're going to talk about it in the next few weeks. James is going to say things like, faith without works is dead. You show me your faith without works, and I'll show you my faith by what I do, paving the way for us to talk about the difference between faith and belief. Belief is not faith. Faith is not belief. Belief is belief. Paul's going to say, That belief is necessary for your salvation. Paul will write that in order to be saved, you've got to believe in your heart that Christ died for your sins and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Someday I'll preach a sermon about what that confession means because it's easy to read right over it without understanding what he's saying. But then James after Paul says, you know, belief is necessary for your salvation, James says something entirely, uh, I wouldn't say different, but it's like an add-on. It's like a here's what comes next kind of a statement. James says that faith without works isn't faith, it's just belief. Faith is belief plus action. So Martin Luther hated this letter because he was afraid that Christians were going to read it and seem to think that they had to do things in order to be saved. That you're not saved by God's grace alone. You're saved by what Christians always called works-based righteousness. That if I do enough, I can earn my own salvation. Martin Luther preached against that. He was afraid people were going to get that out of this uh, letter. So he hated the letter as a result. And yet, that is not what James was trying to say. I can't help but think every time I read this letter about a, a scene. I know I'm extrapolating, but I just can't help but wonder. Like how many times did Jesus and James sit around a fire together or share a meal together? And talk about the things that James was later going to write down, that James was later going to infuse into the teachings of the followers of Christ or those who would become the followers of Christ. I just can't help but wonder how many times they must have sat there and talked about the very things that James is writing about right now. James is going to say that faith is not belief. Belief is belief. Faith is belief plus action. Faith is what happens when you act in accordance with what you believe. So when you are faithful, it means that you're acting in accordance with what you believe. If you believe, for instance, that God is love, then to be faithful is to live in a way that allows that love to take the first place of priority to be loved, and to love others. Faith without works is dead. Interestingly, though, while James is going to talk about all of that, he starts in a place that the first time I read this kind of confused me. Because instead of uh, seeking heart, and he'll do that, he says in the first chapter he starts to connect works with faith that it's an important part of who you are, that while belief may be necessary for salvation, listen to this, faith is necessary for redemption. Here's why. In order for you to change anything about what you think, and you should listen to this, I hope, because you and I live in probably what is the most divisive period in American history that will happen at least within any of our shared lifetimes. So here's what James is saying. It's a well-known truth. I mean, you can Google this if you want. People, People rarely change what they believe as a result of intellectualism. People rarely change what they believe because you have made such a great argument. and They may assent to it, They may disagree with you, but understand that your argument is well-presented. A a well-presented argument is an important thing. Intellectualism is an important thing, but rarely just because a person understands something does that mean that they'll change their life and behavior accordingly. The head, your head has to be connected to your heart in order for change to happen. And Jesus knew that, which is why Jesus preaches and teaches the way that he does. I've sat through preaching courses and public speaking courses uh, for for a long time. My doctorate is in preaching and leadership. In those courses, we are always encouraged to follow some version of uh, what is normally called the persuasive method of public speaking, designed to persuade people to think something. And it's usually, especially in those kind of contexts, presented in kind of an academic way. If I can present a really good argument. With either ethos or pathos or logos, if I can present a good argument that either makes you identify with me or seeks to convince you that what I'm saying is right and that you should believe me because I have credibility, which is what all those things meant, then you'll believe what I say. But Jesus knew that something else was necessary, that your head has to be connected to your heart. And so he taught in stories. Because stories communicate truth more effectively than any other form of communication between humans. So we taught in story. Sometimes he doesn't, almost all the time he does. Because stories connect your head to your heart. That's why Aesop's fables are so powerful. I could tell you the story of the tortoise and the hare and you automatically know what the lesson is without me having to explain it to you because stories communicate truth. In order for you to change, your head has to be connected to your heart. In order for the world around you to be redeemed, your heart has to be connected to your hands and feet. That's what James is saying. Redemption is an interesting concept in the Bible. It's different from salvation. Redemption is different from repentance. When we repent, we have recognized that we're going the wrong direction, metaphorically speaking, and so we change directions. I'm going this way in life, and this way in life leads to death and destruction. That's what Jesus will say. So change the direction you're going. The word for that is Repentance. Repentance and salvation are not the same thing, although repentance is almost always something that is a part of salvation. But redemption is different. Redemption is what happens when you find yourself in a place that's unhealthy and can't get yourself out of it, so someone comes in to redeem you. In every concept in which redemption is used in the Scriptures, largely in the Old Testament, it is the one who has the authority and the power and the resources who goes to redeem, which is what the word means, to bring back, think to uh, save. Somebody who's lost, lost to the kinship circle, lost to life, lost to family, and can't bring themselves back. God's favorite method of redeeming the world around you is through changed hearts that are connected to hands and feet. In order for you to change, your head has to be connected to your heart. But the redemption of the world almost always happens because of what god is doing through changed hearts that are connected to hands and feet this is why james starts with anger because just like the story i told you listen to this your anger very often produces something far worse than what you were angry James actually takes to task the idea that there could even be such a thing as righteous anger by saying that's not the case at all. And I have to wonder, did these these, uh, teachings that he puts in his letter, did they come from conversations with his brother around the campfire where his brother said, no, 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 there's no such thing as righteous anger. What is James going to write here? Something like this. Because angry people don't produce God's righteousness, period. Your anger very often produces something that is worse than what you're angry about. That's the first thing it does. The other thing that it does is that it very often gets in the way of what God is doing to redeem the world around and through you. Because it prevents you from participating in that redemptive process. So what does James say? If you want to start somewhere, stop being angry. How do you do that, James? He had to know we were going to ask, you know, ask that question, and I have to think maybe that came from a conversation around a dinner table one night. Jesus, how are we, how do I, where do they start? How do you not, how do you choose not to be angry? Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, is going to say. Be quick to listen and slow to speak, and then you will be slow to anger. If you are quick to listen, slow, and that's not natural. If you're quick, most of us, listen to respond. We don't listen to hear or to know. It's that you have to retrain yourself because the culture we live in teaches us to listen to respond. You're gonna have to retrain yourself to listen to hear so that you'll know, and I mean know relationally, not in a way that allows you to possess knowledge. You're gonna have to retrain yourself to hear so that you'll better know the person that you're hearing. So what does James say? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, And then you'll be slow to become angry. How do we translate that to make it a little bit easier to understand in the time period we live in? Shut your mouth and your ears will open. If you want to know where to start, shut your mouth and your ears will open. And then there's an interesting order that's going to help you to be redeemed by the love of Christ working in and through you. And it works like this maybe as you shut your mouth so that your ears will open, or as James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and then you will be slow to become angry. One of the things you could do with all your free time while your mouth is closed would be to serve or serve together with the people that you're angry with. When you serve or serve with, the people that you're angry with, with a closed mouth and open ears, then you're going to begin to know people that Christ also loves and died for in a new and different way. And when you do that, interestingly enough, because what's happening there is that you're putting your hands and feet to work firmly within the redemptive context of what God is doing around you and now through you. And as that happens and you follow James' advice and you close your mouth and you open your ears, you're going to get to know better the people that you're previously angry with. And that will begin to change your heart. And as your heart changes, so will what you think. Yeah, but pastor, I don't know that I can do that. And you may not be able to. If you're angry with someone because they disagree with you, then guess what? You can. But you may be angry with somebody who abused you. Literally. Six out of ten women and four out of ten men have been abused. And those are the statistics, I bet they're higher. You may be angry with someone. Who abused you. And so it may not be possible or healthy for you to go serve them or serve with them. You know what you can do? You can serve or serve with others who have experienced that same kind of abuse. And in doing so, as you serve with them in a way that finds you loving them in the way that they should have been loved, but weren't. you're going to find that something inside of your soul begins to heal in a way that you couldn't have anticipated. And your heart will change. And the anger that you may have a right to, but is doing nothing but poisoning you, is going to be easier to let go of so that its poisonous effect on you no longer sets the course for the direction of your life. What does James say? Start with anger. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And when you are, you're going to find that your head will connect to your heart. And your heart will connect to your hands and your feet. And through you, as well as in you, God will redeem the world around you. Let's pray. Thank you. For being a God who does not leave us where you find us. Thank you for helping us to understand between the difference between having a right to be angry and whether or not our anger is right. As we continue, God, to step into what it means to let go of something that is very likely causing something worse in our lives. I want to lift up those who are struggling with what it would mean to let go of that. With the fear that comes from wondering what will happen if they let go of an anger that they've been holding on to. I pray God for courage, but I also pray for peace. And in that circumstance for a peace that passes understanding. So that something that is continuing to hurt can, by your love, begin to be healed. As we ask in your name. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed today's message. As always, tune in next week. Thank you.